0: This podcast contains content about child sexual abuse. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to episode nine of Learn Me Right. We are very, very lucky to have Professor Ben Matthews here to speak with us today about his work. Ben, can you just tell us a little bit about your role at QUT? Yes, Thanks. Ruthie, and hi, Sinead.
1: Thanks so much for doing this. It's a pleasure to be here today. So I'm a professor here in the School of Law at QUT. I've been here since uh, December 1999 um, on academic staff. I'm also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health.
2: Wow. Um, thank you so much for being here. I have some rapid fire questions for you. First of all, pronouns.
1: Ah, oh, I just go by Ben. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Okay, highlight of the year. Hmm.
1: That's a good question, probably because um, in my work, I've most tried to have my research make an impact on law reform. Probably um, two of the key recommendations by the United Kingdom, inquiry into institutional child sexual abuse, were informed by my work. So one of those was to implement for the first time um, a mandatory reporting law for child sexual abuse and the second was to abolish the statute of limitations for civil claims for injuries caused by child sexual abuse so I was very happy to see those recommendations
2: we are all very happy to see those recommendations thank you so much um congratulations on your work um coffee order
1: I love a latte and lots of <laughs>
2: you
1: get me through the day
2: Uh, Just question. uh, One more question. How many lattes do you have a day?
1: I normally have, uh, and my wife gets on my back about this, but I normally have four plus a short black after (laughs) lunch for the afternoon.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No wonder you're so
2: productive. (laughs) I just wanted to check, you know, to standardize mine (laughs) to see if I need to either reduce or increase to be as productive. Um, And finally, what would you sing at karaoke? Oh, that's a hard question.
1: if I could sing, it could be um, a "Sweet Child of Mine."
2: <laughs> that is excellent. I really <laughs> hope one day that we get we get this on karaoke. I would love to join
0: you for that. Thank you, Ben. It was good to get to know you all a bit better. So. Turning to the substantive part of the podcast, are you able to tell us a little bit about your current research and what you're looking at?
1: Mm, mm. So the the big project that uh, we're working on at the moment, which I'm leading, is the Australian Child Maltreatment Study. And it's the first national study of the prevalence of all five forms of child maltreatment. So physical abuse, sexual abuse, emotional abuse, neglect and exposure to domestic violence. And it's also studying the associated outcomes of those types of child maltreatment. So things like mental health disorders, like depression and anxiety and alcohol use disorder and health risk behaviours like cannabis dependence, self-harm and suicide attempts. Um, we're also looking at the, the burden of disease caused by child maltreatment the nation. So it's the first big study of its kind here. Um, I've just been talking with one of our overseas teammates just this morning, David Binklehor, who's been a fantastic to work with and whose survey instrument we adapted for use in this study. So it's, um, it's, a, it's been a daunting project. Uh, we're in the fourth year of this five-year study and we've got our major outcomes currently under review at the moment. So uh, it's been a, a great team to work with, a team of 10 and uh, it's, um, it's been a fantastic study and we hope that it will make a difference.
2: Thank you. Uh, thank you for enlightening us about your research area of interest. Um, the next question that we have for you is what is the research showing, if you can share, and why is this a particular problem?
1: Mm-hmm. Actually, I, I'm not at liberty to share our findings just yet.
2: That is totally okay.
1: But what I might do instead is to just situate that project within a broader program of research that I've been doing basically for, for 20 years.
2: Perfect.
1: So what I've been doing in a nutshell is to look at how legal and social systems can do a better job of preventing, identifying and responding to various types of child maltreatment. And a lot of that work has been done, particularly about child sexual abuse, which is a particularly pernicious and difficult problem for societies to deal with, um, largely because it happens um, quite often and in quite a large proportion of cases, it's very, very difficult to detect and interrupt and respond to. And that's because it happens in clandestine circumstances kids for many good reasons, often do not disclose their experience in childhood and in many cases forever. So a lot of work um, has been done in the last 20 years by me and, and collaborators that I've worked with about different ways in which we can prevent, identify and respond to child sexual abuse. And I'll, I'll give a few examples mm-hmm. if that helps. And I should probably first define what child sexual abuse is. That would in would be great. In fact, this is a really important question, which we have done a lot of work on And a paper that we published a few years ago, tried to advance the international field and clarify how we should understand child sexual abuse and why. Um, and so child sexual abuse for us on a robust conceptual model should be seen as any contact or non-contact sexual act. That's done by any person, so it doesn't have to be just by an adult, it can be inflicted by an adolescent or another child, where the act is done to obtain sexual gratification, where the child either cannot consent for developmental reasons, or they may have the capacity to consent to sex, but they actually don't consent to that particular interaction. And that definition is very important because it means that we're including the things that we should when we talk about child sexual abuse and we're excluding things that um, can justifiably be excluded, like normal developmental play between infants, et cetera, genuinely consensual sex between, say, adolescents in a romantic relationship. So that's important just to get that definition straight. Mm. Um, To give you just a couple of points about the three strands of work on prevention, identification and response, Um, in terms of identification of these cases, one of the big areas of work we've done is on mandatory reporting laws for child sexual abuse. And those laws are ones that require designated professionals like teachers, nurses, doctors and police to report to government authorities situations that they encounter in the course of their work where they either know, say, by receiving a disclosure of child sexual abuse that a case has happened, or they observe a child's behaviour that indicates sexual abuse might be happening. So we've done a lot of work on different laws in different jurisdictions to see what the law says and how sound it is, or if there is no law, see what the effects of not having a law is on actual detection of cases, mm-hmm. and then make recommendations about what should happen. So we've done studies in in Australia at the national level and in different states. We've done theoretical, empirical and legal studies and they have influenced lots of legislative and policy and practical changes. So that's been a a big part of work in in the last 20 years. Another uh, dimension of this work is to look at response-based interventions and the key area there is uh, the statutes of limitation for civil claims And the key problem that has happened here for decades is that um, before recent reforms across all Australian states and territories, statutes of limitation gave people essentially three years since turning 18 Mm -hmm. to commence a civil claim in court for injuries that they suffered through sexual abuse. And this created a major problem for survivors of child sexual abuse. And the reason is, that a large majority of people who experience sexual abuse are for very good reasons, often related to mental health problems, which are a consequence of the child sexual abuse they suffer, are simply unable to even contemplate bringing a lawsuit by that time. Mm -hmm. Another reason is that often a lot of the injuries that are consequent upon child sexual abuse don't crystallise until after age 21. So you don't even know what you might be suing for yet. Mm. So those statutes of limitation um, caused major problems in access to justice, which affects tens of thousands of people across Australia. Yeah. Um, and they existed in every state and territory. And so defendants, whether they were individuals or institutions like churches, school authorities, etc could e- quite easily block people from bringing a civil claim. So you could have experienced terrible sexual abuse, have terrible injuries, be otherwise entitled to millions of dollars in compensation for injury, for rehabilitation, etc., and not be able to get it. Mm. And that was a major problem. Um, in the last decade, a massive landmark change, a positive change has happened in Australia. Um, partly as a result of uh, some of the work that I and others did back in the early 2000s and advocacy efforts that have continued since then, partly because of the recommendations of state government inquiries in New South Wales and Victoria and the Royal Commission into Institutional responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which which recommended removal of these um, statutes of implementation for this class of case. As a result of that, gradually, since 2015, um, the states have kind of fallen in line like dominoes in removing these statutes of limitation for child sexual abuse claims. They are really complex. And so there are still some little glitches here and there. And I'm sorry to say that some institutional defendants are still trying to exploit those loopholes, which is uh, extremely disappointing to see, Uh, but hopefully we will end up closing those. So as a result of this, literally thousands of people have been able to bring claims and obtain
2: compensation. That's
0: amazing. Can I just ask one question, Ben? So for for viewers or listeners that might not have a legal background, you mentioned specifically civil cases. So that's about getting compensation. Yes. Can you just maybe explain the difference between civil and criminal matters in this area?
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Ruthie. So in a civil claim, um, you're acting as an individual to access a a civil court and you're basically seeking compensation from the person or the institution that inflicted the, the injury upon you or was responsible for that injury inflicted upon you. So it doesn't involve a criminal case or anyone going to jail or anything like that. And you can bring that civil claim without anyone having been convicted either. Um, so those laws, those statutes of limitation effectively blocked most survivors of child sexual abuse from getting compensation. And that's a, that's a really big deal because access to the justice system is a fundamental tenet of the liberal democratic system and of a, a rule of law society where we can um, get access to the justice system for, for wrongs that are done. On the other hand, as you alluded to, Ruthie, we have the criminal justice system as well. And the criminal justice system in this sphere remains hugely problematic for child sexual abuse victims. There have been some positive reforms recently, which is good, Mm -hmm. and there are other um, reforms, hopefully pending, um, to do with, for example, having better approaches to some types of offences. However, uh, in a criminal case where the um, prosecutor is not the individual or the person bringing the complaint is not really the individual, it's actually the state. So criminal cases are brought by the state. Mm -hmm. The victim or survivor of child sexual abuse is actually a witness in the case. So even though it's brought kind of on their behalf it's actually brought by the state now this is these are cases that are brought for the purpose of criminally uh, convicting and punishing the individual offender so it's quite different to the the civil setting and one of the differences in the other differences in in criminal prosecutions is that to prove a criminal prosecution and convict an offender you have to prove the offense beyond reasonable doubt that's a, a higher up threshold than occurs in, in civil cases, which is the balance of probabilities. For many, many reasons in child sexual abuse, criminal prosecutions, it is extremely difficult, even now, to get convictions. And sometimes even when convictions do occur, the outcome in terms of sentencing is probably less than satisfactory, at least from the victim's father's perspective. Criminal prosecutions can also be difficult for victim survivors to to go through because of the the process that is adopted as as a a function of the criminal justice system in having to give statements to be examined, cross-examined, to have their credibility questioned, et cetera. My view is that the criminal justice system was not designed for these types of cases, and we really need a different method of approaching them.
2: Well, with that in mind, do you have any particular solutions that you are hoping to achieve with either Queensland or Australian government to uh, either solve the criminal justice problem or potentially these civil claims as well?
1: Mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll make some remarks about both those things and then some broader ones.
2: That you, would be an amazing right. thing. That's right.
1: So, yeah, I mean, with the criminal justice system, I think... Uh, We can tinker around the edges a bit. We can improve offences. We can improve definitions and things. And those things are important Mm -hmm. and are necessary. Um, But some of the fundamental structural components of the criminal justice system will remain. um, And that's going to pose massive problems. So really, I think, um, ideally, and this might be some way off, but I think we can at least start now. I think we need some different method of criminal prosecution for this class of case. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a, you know, some people would think that's kind of a radical thought, but the fact is this type of context is is so different to the normal types of criminal offences that the criminal justice system was set up for centuries ago in our our jurisdiction. Um, In terms of the civil claims and the statutes of limitation problems, there's some really technical issues there about... Um, revival of claims that uh, where time might have expired previously, so looking backwards, um, and uh, that can be resolved, I think, through appropriate adjustment at the state level mm-hmm. to closing some of those loopholes. Um, so one of the key issues there is is whether um, a civil claim can still be brought, and it provides the defendant still with a reasonable um, fair trial process. And sometimes in those historical cases that might've happened, say 20, 30 years ago, where now the victim survivor is now able to bring their claim because these reforms were made retrospective, not just prospective. So it means that people now who previously were, had been blocked out by the statute of limitations can now all of a sudden bring their claim. In some of those cases, The institution that might have been responsible for the abuse is saying, well, um, the alleged offender is now dead or, say, has dementia, and so we can't defend ourselves properly because we don't have access to all of the normal witnesses and things that we might otherwise have had. So we can't get a fair trial. So they're essentially claiming that these particular provisions in the legislation um enable them to to seek a bar on this claim Mm. Um, and for various reasons in many of those cases even in those cases i believe and others believe that there still actually can be a fair trial because there's plenty of other evidence uh, that can support a fair trial in that circumstance Um, so i think some some remaining amendments need to happen there to enable uh, or to ensure that those kinds of loopholes aren't exploited mm. by uh, a defendant who probably does know the, the um, offending did happen and is just using this to to liability yeah um at the broader level so some of those comments have been talking about responses after the event um and identification of cases at the broader level of prevention Um, I think this is the big challenge for governments now at the national level and at the state level, and it's a challenge at the societal level and at the institutional level and at the individual level as well. Mm. Um, And so I think some things can um, happen and and should happen to increase our um, national capacity to prevent child sexual abuse in the first place. And there are increasing policy efforts at the government level to do this. So we see these in, say, national plans to prevent violence against women and children, national plans to prevent child sexual abuse, establishment of big national agencies for child safety and and for online safety as well. So we have our, um, our office of the e safety commissioner, which is a really a pioneering office at the international level for online. Um, safety including from sexual abuse so some of those national efforts are are great but um, we can also have better social norms against sexual violence and social norms that promote equality between sexes as well which helps that's one factor that does militate against sexual abuse at the broader level Um, within institutions we need institutional leaders who know about sexual abuse who are educated about it to create policies that apply across and within their institutions so that their staff are equipped to intervene and identify it when they when they should mm. um, and to prevent offenders you know joining those institutions and, and being able to to inflict sexual abuse on kids that attend those having really good codes of conduct as well. Mm. Um, so a lot of things can happen at the national level and institutional level. Even at the individual person level, we can also do a lot of things as well. So sex education is a really big one, for example, especially for boys, because most offenders with child sexual abuse are males. Mm-hmm. So we need good sex education, we need good development of knowledge and attitudes and, and respect towards everyone, but especially to, to females, um, and good development of um, we might call it for want of a better term sexual literacy and emotional literacy skills of self-regulation etc mm-hmm. yeah so uh, there's a lot of things that we can do um we do see um, that you know once societies do put in place some of those things rates of sexual abuse can decline so this is something that we can make a change in
2: it's really interesting that that last one about um, healthy sexual education because I remember when I was in high school we got divided up into the to the boys and girls at the time and you know we learned about sexual safety and they learned how to put a condom on a eggplant you know like it's just it was completely inadequate I didn't actually learn that you had to be taught consent in high school by the time you leave you're 17 18 years old so it's the um the reform by the, the ministers for education a little while ago I um I sent a submission in with that and that was really important to me there it's really awesome to see those changes coming through yeah that's great
1: and look as you say she it that, that type of um sex education it it should be more about uh relationships generally and sexual relationships mm. than just the mechanics you know
2: yeah 100 percent and
1: especially now we're in a um a social environment with kind of unprecedented characteristics and challenges um including through technology that you know weren't around even even 20 years ago
2: so we need to adapt with that as well Mm -hmm. with that in mind um what can the ordinary person like do about this sort of thing? You know, like the ordinary person isn't a principal who can change sexual education in school and probably not a member of parliament who can, you know, <laughs> submit a, a statement in in, in parliament. Um, but what can the ordinary person know or do with this information? Mm.
1: That's a good question. We could probably talk about that all day. But probably a few things that spring to mind are, um, first, if, um, a child were to disclose to you that they had experienced sexual abuse, then first and foremost, you believe them and, mm. and support them and let them know that it was in no way their fault. Um, we know that it's hard for kids to disclose at all. Um, we also know that when they do, they're not lying. And one of the worst things that can happen is for a kid to actually get up the courage to disclose and um, be blamed for it or be disbelieved. So that is near the top of the list in in things that we should do. when kids do disclose and receive support, it can be a a massive help to them. Um, It can also mean that the likelihood of them developing mental health problems, consequent on sexual abuse and and health risk behaviours can um, be reduced. So believing and supporting any kid who discloses to you is really, really important. Um, Probably a second thing would be for parents and intending parents to to become aware of this um, and to know the types of things that can be done to support their child in being able to recognise harmful behaviours, you know, things like what's good touch, what's bad touch and and who they can turn to if they ever experience bad touch. Mm. Um, But also if you're um, parenting to instil in your kids and especially sons um, healthy, respectful relationships and um, healthy approaches to, to sexual development. Those things are, are pretty important, I think, at the individual level.
0: So it sounds like ordinary people have actually a lot of power here. Just by listening and believing and supporting, you can make a huge difference to an individual who might have experienced this. So that's great advice. Thank Ab- you. Absolutely.
1: Thank you. Absolutely.
0: Thank you so much. And I think that's all we wanted to ask, but I know we could actually probably talk about this forever and ever. Um, And we're so thankful for the work that you and your team and collaborators have done in this space. And very, very interested to see once it's um, out in the open, the results of the prevalence study, because I think that will just be fantastic data to have and make a huge difference going forward. So thank you for today and for for the last 20 years of your work. (laughs) Thank you so much.
2: We have utmost respect for you and what you do, and we are so honoured that you ha- gave us 20 minutes of your time today to mm-hmm. come onto our little oh, show. It's a,
1: it's a pleasure. Thank you for doing it. It's great that you're doing this. We really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, watch this space for the results, hopefully early next year, and very happy to have another chat with you two the time.
2: Yes, <laughs> Rick and I for our, our, our audio listeners just gave a little dance, dance. <laughs> Thank you, Ben.